Life in a Small French Village, Episode 7, Madame Suwiki's Dream. By the 1980s, any manifestation of witchcraft had long disappeared from this part of France, Picardy, and I could find none in our village. My neighbour, Mary Paul, the village gossip, and a woman more than happy to collect any information on such a delectable subject, could only say, very vaguely, that she'd heard of a couple who, some years ago, had practised some form of sorcery out on a distant farm, but she didn't know exactly where the farm was, and the couple had, in any case, long departed. Or perhaps they were dead. Of course, by now, the veillés no longer existed, and they had certainly kept superstition alive in the old days. The veillés were those evenings during the long, cold winter months when people would gather together in one house where there was a good fire and enough light so that the women could work at weaving, carding, spinning, or carrying out other domestic tasks, while the men generally sat at a nearby table, sometimes caning chairs, shucking walnuts or carving, but mostly drinking and telling stories while younger generations sat close by and listened. Such communal evenings were said to save candlelight and fuel, and it was less costly to light and heat one household than many. This was also the way information was passed down from one generation to another. Legends, fairy tales, also stories of crimes, of mysterious happenings, haunted houses, and of folk, living or dead, with evil intentions. And they did reinforce social ties and local loyalties, but they also invoked fear of the unknown. There was indeed philosophy behind the old tales, but how many were able to see it? Of course, fear had been a constant in the days when the population was kept low by epidemics and famine, when weakened by hunger people had little resistance to disease. Leprosy was endemic, as were fevers, smallpox, measles, the bubonic plague and dysentery. Of course, those who lived in the towns and cities were even more susceptible to illness because of the crowded and unsanitary conditions, and terrified city dwellers often took refuge in the country where folks were healthier. It was an unfortunate thing to do, for disease was spread into the countryside in this way. But it wasn't only disease that was feared. There were floods, destructive storms that destroyed crops, frosts, hail, plagues of insects, and the deadly wars waged by nobles and the kings. There was no remedy for calamity. Starvation could be warded off by making bread with chestnuts, grape seeds, flowers or hazelnuts, or fern roots that were dried and ground into a powder to replace wheat. Some collected herbs and flowers and ate them. Not always a happy solution, and often enough a fatal one. And, of course, one could ask for the assistance of sorcerers and healers. Healers used hundreds of potions, and some of them have come down to us today and are still used in herbal medicine. Of course, for epidemics, such cures were totally ineffective, and in such cases, sorcerers were consulted. They could cast the spells which would calm evil spirits and distract, even temporarily, the devil, turn the evil eye away from oneself and on to an enemy for revenge, or to gain their farm or land. Sorcerers and witches were essential to village life, but after the 15th century, the clergy 
irritated by their influence, declared sorcery was the work of the devil. The church pressed the elite, and especially the judges, to persecute sorcerers and witches, and now those workers of magic, so much appreciated by villagers, saw the same villagers turn against them, become their persecutors and murderers. Famine, disease, and epidemics continued, of course, but the church attributed them to divine anger at the sins of the world and encouraged villagers to make pilgrimages to the tombs of saints or celestial doctors to pray to their statues. And soon long, chanting processions could be seen crossing fields and vineyards. Not that sorcery died out, of course. But, as I said, by now there were few manifestations of it in this area in the 1970s and 80s. Although, as the ethnologist Jean Fevre-Sadat discovered, in other regions like Brittany and the Mayenne, sorcerers were still going at it hammer and tongs, burying animal hearts pierced with nails in neighbours' barns, casting spells so that chickens died and cows refused to give milk and people became terribly ill with mysterious diseases or houses burnt to the ground. In my village, people still followed the pagan custom of handing out brie beni or twigs of boxwood on the last Sunday before Easter. Once, this was thought to protect harvests from storms and hail, but nowadays it was merely a domestic custom protecting the home or agricultural buildings. A few other beliefs were still around too. You shouldn't plant a garden before one particular saint's day. The hoot of an owl meant bad luck was on its way hither. Crows, especially a group of crows flying around the house, was an omen of death. If you had gold coins in your hand when you heard the first cuckoo in the spring, then you would become rich. Although, who had gold coins these days? And if anyone did have them, they were probably pretty rich already. Another local manifestation of belief in the supernatural was the absolute faith everyone seemed to have in Madame Sawicki's premonitory dreams. And no one, not even Sigmund Freud, would have been able to convince her that although she believed her dreams foretold the future, they only actually showed what she would like to occur. One warm day in spring, my neighbour Dracula knocked on my door, handed me a sprig of boxwood, and told me to put it over my chicken coop to protect the birds and keep the hens laying. Then she announced she was now going off for her month-long annual vacation. She looked quite pleased, too, as pleased as anyone going off for the year's big holiday. The difference here was that Dracula was actually going into a closed psychiatric hospital, something, she explained, she did every year, which is why she called it her yearly vacation. And it was a lovely place too, she said. The high surrounding walls enclosed a beautiful park with many trees and flower beds. And this was such a nice time of the year to be there. She gave me no further details as to why she was obliged to reside there annually for a whole month. But I suppose I didn't really need any. Dracula did, admittedly, have her odd moments. And so, with her usual good-natured smile, down the sunny early morning road she went, a spring in her step and a rather battered suitcase in her hand, off to hitch her way thither. And so village life would go on without her for a while. Gortapat, or Roland, her paramour, would fend for himself, but that was no great tragedy. He'd been a bachelor for years before picking up Dracula from that ditch along the highway. 
and knowing Dracula, she'd made certain that his shirts were clean and ironed, that he was well supplied in clean socks, and one month wasn't an eternity after all. Except things took a strange and complicated turn. Before the dust had even started to settle in Dracula's tracks, La Grosse Marie crossed the road and, abandoning her parents' house, moved in with Roland. We were all astounded. Well, for a while, anyway. La Grosse was known for her desire to find a husband, for her tempestuous sexual passions, especially when the men with the bumper cars came to town for a week once a year. She was also famous for wearing teensy bikini underpants that she never hesitated to show all in sundry, heaving high her miniskirt, grinning lasciviously at our shocked expressions. La Grosse's over-opulent bloated members, clad in skimpy underclothes, were not a pretty sight. But, as they say, for every pot there's a lid, and here was Roland, ready and willing now that Dracula had left her post. And that's another saying. Qui va à la chasse perd sa place, et quand il revient, il y trouve un chien. He who goes out hunting loses his place, and when he returns, he finds a dog in it. In fact, La Grosse simply transferred her cleaning, ironing, cooking chores from her family home to Roland's house just across the street and stepped into Dracula's shoes. What did her family think? Probably not a lot, since she did continue to do chores in her own home at the same time. Besides, she was in her late twenties now and unmarried. She could do worse than taking up with the man across the street. And Roland had no objection, of course. How long had he and La Grosse been eyeing each other with unrequited desire? Or was this a spur-of-the-moment decision? The only hair in the soup was, what would happen in a month's time when Dracula came back from the mental hospital? I suppose Roland reassured Lagrosse on that account. She was his new true love. And, of course, none of the rest of us in the street cared. We just wished that Lagrosse would stop acting so superior and sneering at all of us now. But then, one morning, I found Madame Sawicki with Mary Paul, both standing in the middle of the road. Mary Paul was looking rather delighted and smug, as if she had inside information about some impending social calamity. She was rather fond of that sort of thing. But Madame Suiki was wringing her hands with anguish and looking terribly upset. What could possibly be wrong? Well, she'd had one of her premonitory dreams, she said, and in the dream she'd seen Dracula strolling back into the village, it would happen too. Dracula's arrival was imminent. Her dreams always foretold the near future, and this would be a disaster. There would be violence, something terrible, certainly murder. We did our best to comfort her. Dracula wasn't expected back for another three weeks, and perhaps Roland and Lagos would be tired of each other by then. Besides, a dream was only that. It wasn't reality. Dracula was safely locked away, but there was no way she would believe us. She's coming. I know she's on her way now. I know it. I know it. And wouldn't you know it, just before the church bells rang their midday angelus, there came Dracula, strolling up the road, pleased to sponge with herself, but minus her battered suitcase. What was she doing here? She'd had the feeling something was wrong, she said, and that had convinced her to fare le mur, or go over the wall. She'd escaped, left the hospital without permission, 
and I really could picture her leaping over the hospital's high walls with a witch's agility. Now, I have to admit, I wasn't around for the ensuing drama. I didn't want to be. I stayed in my house, although I soon discovered quite a crowd had gathered outside the gate of Roland's house. And soon enough, there was enough noise to even have me peeking out. Both Dracula and La Grosse stood in the yard in front of the house, screaming up at Roland, each one shouting she loved him to open the door and let her in. And Roland, safe and sound, the doors locked, stood in an upstairs window, screaming at them both, telling them to go away, leave him alone. He was through with women. He hated them both. He wanted nothing to do with either one of them. Which didn't discourage the women at all. They continued their pleading. Desperate, Roland began to chuck all the belongings of both women out of the window until the yard resembled a battlefield of cloth, pots and pans, toiletries and shoes. And then he resorted to his usual solution for any problem. He took out his trusty rifle and began firing. You could hear the shots all over the village. How was the drama resolved? I have no idea. But that evening, the yard was back to its normal state. La Grosse had returned to her family across the road, and Dracula was back in Roland's kitchen, cooking dinner. It was as if nothing had ever gone amiss. La Grosse would have to do her husband hunting further afield, and Madame Sawicki was able ever afterward to say, I told you so, and we all had to believe in her divinatory dreams. <laughs> <laughs>